What I want to do tonight is conclude this study of election with not another defense of it or another argument in its favor, but I want us to move from debating into delighting. Uh, I want us to see the beauty that's in this doctrine and why I would spend my time contending for it. I've probably preached four to five sermons to you guys on the various aspects of this. I've, well, maybe two sermons and a couple of more lecture style, just giving defense and trying to answer and respond to opposition to this. But this is really the reason that it matters. In our culture, we have to do some of this arguing for it, debating for it, uh, giving reasons why we believe it, because it is a hot topic. It's not widely accepted. It's not the doctrine of the Trinity, which within evangelicalism enjoys broad acceptance. It's not that. It's still hotly debated, and so it needs to be defended. But the reason for it is, one, because it's just the teaching of the Bible. I think it's just what the Bible says, and it's by default important. Just by virtue of where the doctrine of election is located, it's important. If it's between the front and back cover of your Bible, it's important, if for no other reason, than because it's in there. It's in that spot. It's a location. But on a more practical level, if you go, yeah, I know, but you didn't spend a lot of time arguing for the, the precise representation of the genealogies in Leviticus or in Numbers, but they're in there. So why, why this doctrine? Why, why spend the time to contend for this one? I think Ephesians 1 and 2 answers the question as clearly as anywhere else in the Bible. I want us to start actually with Ephesians 1, and we'll begin in verse 1. Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, and he starts out this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should not only be holy and blameless before, or that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. If you notice, twice he does this, well, three times total in verses 3 to 14, he anchors this idea of God choosing us, adopting us, predestining us, electing us, in this, or he he reveals the reason for it, I guess is the way to say this. It's to the praise of his glorious grace 
to the praise of His glorious grace. He does it again in verse 12, to the praise of His glory. Again in verse 14, to the praise of His glory. That's the common theme in verses 3 to 14. Uh, This whole plan of salvation, which God, according to this passage, worked out, so to speak, before anything was ever created. He chose a people in Him before the foundation of the world. And He did this, He accomplished this, by offering His own Son as the living sacrifice to bring about our redemption. And why did He do this? What was He after? He was after His own glory, the praise of His glorious grace. So that's why Paul repeats that, I think, three times. And so the doctrine of election, I think, practically speaking, is unbelievably important. It's not the central gospel, but it is intricately woven into it. Intricately woven into it. And the whole idea, the whole motive, if you will, behind God electing people or choosing people is that those who are chosen would praise His glorious grace. They would give Him the glory and the honor that He's due for doing this. They would praise Him. And so that's why I say tonight, I wanted to make sure that we ended on this. Sometimes this whole idea of election, the whole discussion on election, stops at at debating. The whole thing, it, it never moves past that. Debating is the final place that this discussion ends. Debate. But it was never, it should not ever end there. The goal of election is delight for people to enjoy and glory in and delight themselves in God, to praise God for his greatness. And so, what I want us to do for the rest of tonight is ask this simple question Why should the doctrine of election motivate us to praise God? What is it about? this doctrine of election that should make you and I delight ourselves in God, give glory, if you will, to God. To do this, I want us to walk through Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you notice, Paul and the remainder of the Your New Testament frequently uses metaphors to describe the spiritual condition 
of people. So it says here in verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He uses this word because that is the actual spiritual condition. But what we associate death with is like a corpse, like a cadaver, dead, not living anymore, unable to do anything, not even breathing, not thinking, completely removed. They're gone. There may be a, a physical presence there, but there's no life. It's total death. That's the metaphor that the Bible uses to describe us from birth, spiritually. We, spiritually speaking, from birth, are corpses. We are born flatlined, if you're a, uh, a fan of nursing or of medicine. We're, we're flatlined from birth, dead in sin. And he says, we were, in verse 3, by nature, it, it's inherent in us, we were children of wrath, uh, like the like the rest of mankind. So again, he he refers or he refers here to our being born in this. So we were born children of wrath. We were born dead in sin, flatlined spiritually, with no health in us, and beyond that, I will argue, no ability to help ourselves. And that's the problem. That's the problem, is that we're not able. To help ourselves. We're not able to save ourselves. We are in a position of total need. I've mentioned this before, but I've heard people use, make metaphor of salvation like it's a person who's drowning and a, and a boat comes by and a man with a life raft or a, or a life preserver throws the preserver to the man drowning. And if only the man drowning will reach up and grab that life preserver and be pulled to safety, he'll be saved. The problem with that analogy is it assumes something that's wrong about the person. It assumes that that person is living. Dead people don't reach out for life preservers. Dead people sink to the bottom of the ocean, and they're done. That's it, right? Uh, and so the, the, that metaphor falls short. What's a better picture? Well, in John chapter 11, the Bible talks to us about the, the death of Lazarus. Okay, And what Jesus is doing there, and you see him make mention of it throughout, he is teaching on salvation. He's teaching that, it's, he's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. You don't have life. I have life, says Jesus. Life is in me. And I give life to you. And so the whole picture of Lazarus, what is that supposed to do? Well, in John, we know overall, it validates Jesus' divinity, right? So a, guy, guy, a man walks around uh, speaking to dead people and they come back to life. John says in, in chapter 21 that he is writing these things so that you'll believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, okay? So that's overarching thing that he's doing. Okay, so when people see dead people come to life, first thought is, oh, he's God. I get it. You know, because when I try that, it, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work. You know, I can go to the morgue and try to be kind to people, but it doesn't, it doesn't help. You know, no one ever comes back. The second thing, though, Jesus is doing is he's teaching. He's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Why does he say resurrection and the life? 
What's he implying to his hearers? He's, he is implying that they don't have life and that they need to be risen from the dead, that they, they lack life and that he has it. And so the, the better metaphor, if you will, if we're going to go back to our drowning uh, metaphor, is that there is a man who has drowned. <laughs> He's on the bottom of the pool, okay? And someone jumps in, they grab him, they pull him out of the water, they put him on the shore, and even though he's dead, they resuscitate, they revive him, they restore life to him, and he is a, he, he's helpless. He, he is the recipient only. He just receives grace, and that's, that's all he's capable of doing, is receiving this grace, this life from the person who's jumped in to save him. Now, <clears throat> how does this life happen? Well, we've alluded to it the whole time. Uh, we, we are not capable of choosing God, and so it tells us right here in verse 4. But God, and if you fast forward to verse 5, after he kind of gets through some reasonings for this and the timing of this, uh, but God, uh, even when we were dead in our trespasses, did what? Made us alive. So the verbiage here is that we have been acted upon. Not that we have done something, but that something has been done to us and for us. We've been made alive by God. God has done this. Now, why is this a big deal? What is it that we were dead and we needed to be made alive? And what's the story here? Why, why was this so essential? How did this practically work out? What did it look like for us to be dead? And what does it look like for us to be made alive? The way the Bible describes the human condition, this death that we were in, is in numerous ways. <clears throat> Genesis 8.21, for example, says that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So the intention of our heart is evil from youth, from, from early childhood. Now, what does that mean? That means that even if we perform right activities, even if we do moral things or are kind people, even if we're well-liked or well-accepted. The intention of our heart is evil. Well, how do you define evil? You go, well, I, I, when I help people, I'm not secretly wishing they would die. Like, evil. You know, what do you mean evil? The idea of evil certainly includes morals. Okay? It certainly includes the desire to do things that are evil, but it's really much bigger than that. It's a settled hostility toward God. It's godlessness. So Paul in Romans 1 describes this saying that there's no fear of God before their eyes. They have no regard for God. So this idea of spiritual death and having a heart that's bent on evil certainly includes the desire to do things that are immoral. So we, we never have to teach children to be selfish. 
right? It's, it's natural. It's built right in. It's a feature that children just have. And uh, it's, it's, they, they come prepackaged with a desire for themselves, uh, a, a grotesque selfishness. You don't remember when you were a child, uh, but your parents probably remember when you were tiny. And I'm sure they'd be happy to regurgitate for you, as my mother has before, uh, that I did not need to be taught how to be selfish. I just came right out with it. Well, what is that? It's evil intention in my heart, even from as young as we can determine what intentions of children are. There's always definitive moments, by the way. One day, if if the Lord tarries and you have children of your own, you'll know the moment that there was willful disobedience. You'll know when it's no longer, hey, he just threw food in the floor, but he doesn't really understand what he's doing, to, buddy, we don't throw food in the floor, and then they just look at you and go, boom, like, you want a piece of me? You know, and there's that moment where the kid essentially reveals or you become aware that he is now actively acting, behaving on the evil intentions that are in his heart. But kids are born with it. We all are. Ecclesiastes 9 says this, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. Full of evil. What does this deadness look like? It looks like being filled with evil. Mark 7 For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these things come from within, from a spiritual condition that's internal, and they defile a person. What does death look like? Well, it's the thoughts It's the heart desires that produce sexual immorality and theft and so on and so on. And then in Romans 8, Paul, to me, makes the statement that I think captures the essence of man's deadness in sin. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot It cannot. It has no ability. If we were to go back to the corpse idea, this is it. The mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God because it doesn't submit to God's law. Do you equate those two? Not submitting yourself to God is to have a mind that's hostile toward God. There's not a medium ground. There, there, There is no pretty good guy who's not in open violation, so to speak, of God, but he's not really wanting to embrace him either. He just kind of is, is, is neutral. There is no neutral. The mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God because it doesn't submit to God's law. It does not submit to God's law. But he adds a clarification there that's critical. It's very telling. He says, indeed, It cannot. The mind that's set on the flesh cannot submit to God. It's incapable. Why? Well, you pick back up with our Ephesians 2 metaphor. Because the heart that's, or the mind that's set on the flesh is dead. 
dead people can't do anything. Dead people have no ability at all. That's what we were like. And so what's the penalty for that? I mean, God certainly, we would argue, is just. If he's not just, then he's not a good God. The God of the Bible is perfectly just. Uh, in fact, he makes one of the most, he makes a, a, a promise that I'm thankful for and that terrifies me. He says that he will by no means clear the guilty. By no means. It, it will not happen. There's a 0% chance that anyone who's ever committed sin, who's ever rebelled against God, which is all of humanity throughout all of history, he says, I will not ever clear those who are guilty. If you're guilty, you will be punished accordingly. And how does the scripture speak of this? 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says that they, those who are in rejection of Christ, whose minds are hostile toward him, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Everlasting destruction. Everlasting. Like it never stops. It's eternal in nature. There's no stopping point for it. It is everlasting destruction. Shut out from the presence of the Lord. Now this is something that's as difficult to understand as the idea of never-ending punishment. We don't really have mental categories for that, right? But the idea of being shut out from the presence of the Lord is no less stunning, no less devastating than this idea of everlasting destruction. Shut out from the presence of the Lord. What would that be like? Well, if you consider it in Matthew 5 when Jesus says that God in his love, some people call it common grace. I like the word love because that's the one that's used in the passage. So let's go with that. Uh, God's love is demonstrated in some sense to all men. All men. Whether believing or unbelieving. And this is the way that he explains it. He says, for God causes the rains to fall on both the just and the unjust, those who are in Christ, those who are not. He causes the rains to fall. Well, what does rain do for us? Well, rain does lots of stuff. Rain gives us lakes to swim in, and that's fun. Rain gives us water to drink. Rain gives us water for crops that grow and enable us to eat. Rain gives us water for crops to grow and enable us to enjoy milk and ice cream and all sorts of other products, cheese, you name it, uh, cereal. Virtually every single thing that we eat is a gift of God. Now consider this, even on your worst days on earth, worst days, and I've talked to people who've had, I mean, parents die, children die. Even on their worst days, they can point to little moments of joy. 
even when things are as bad here as we can imagine them being. You can point to a little moment. Maybe it was that the milk that you drank that morning, if you're not lactose intolerant or something, and you enjoy it, maybe it was that the milk just tasted good. It was temporarily refreshing to you. Maybe, maybe you ate a bowl of ice cream and it just tasted good. Maybe you got to eat uh, some really well-cooked chicken. Maybe you got to eat a steak. Maybe you got to whatever. These are all things that result essentially from the rain falling. Okay, Little moments of joy that come into life. All because God has rainfall and take care of the earth and provide for us gifts that are good. But what's going to happen to those who are outside of Christ is that those little moments of joy, even on horrible days, will be gone. Shut out from the presence of the Lord. That's why I say I I don't think we have a mental category for this. So many things that we have, we just take for granted. You know, they're they're things that we just assume. We don't actively say, oh yeah, this happened because the rain fell from God. And then God, because he had created a good earth that would grow and be fruitful, would produce these things for us. And then we get to eat them and we get to enjoy them. They are good gifts. They, They taste good. Good gifts that enable us to create materials that allow us to build structures and to have them air-conditioned and to be comfortable and nice. And, and you come in from hot outside on a worse day, terrible day, you come in from when it's hot outside and you feel the refreshment of an air conditioner. And even if that doesn't solve all the world's problems or even your own, you go, oh, it's good to be inside. There, there's a relief that's there, a, a, an enjoyment that's there. But the promise of 2 Thessalonians 1.9 is that even that will stop. All of that will come to an end. Matthew 13.50 says, And they'll be thrown into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping, which is distinct from crying. There'll be weeping. And there'll be gnashing of teeth. I've made mention of this before, but the idea of gnashing is that you're grinding the enamel off of you. You're literally wearing your teeth out because the pain is so intense, it's unbearable. Your jaw locks and it begins to grind and it literally just breaks your teeth apart over time. We don't have a mental category for that. Who has felt pain that's like that? The penalty for our rebellion against God, for our deadness in sin, our hostility toward him, is eternal destruction completely apart from all things that are good, all things that are potentially enjoyable, and where there's nothing but pain, nothing but torment. So why is it good? Why is God worthy of praise? Why is it a big deal that, according to Ephesians 2, God has made us alive? 
Why is that a big deal? It's because when we live in this world now, where there are good things and enjoyable things, they're not the best things. There's more beyond this that for us will be overjoying. In Ephesians 2, he says this, What's he going to do? What's going to happen to those who are in Christ, who are elect, who've been made alive? What's the big plan here? Like, what are we ultimately shooting for? Well, God says, here's his reason. The cat's out of the bag. Here it is. He does this so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. What? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Now contrast that with what we just read from 2 Thessalonians. See, for the person who is dead in sin, they, die, they, they are dead spiritually now. And then they will die physically and be thrown into an eternal state of judgment and punishment. In other words, this is the best life is going to get for them. Ever. If you think your life stinks, sorry. This is the best that there is for those who are outside of Christ. This is the best. This is the most hopeful thing that we have. But for those who are in Christ, when you feel the trivial but yet real joys of the air conditioner and of steak and of ice cream, when we experience these joys, what do they do for those who are in Christ? They remind us, how much more is there to come? God has secured for me in Christ so much more than this. This steak is fantastic. And as Tice Jensen, I believe, quoted on Sunday morning, I love the word he used, it's a signpost. You eat a delicious steak and go, wow, that was fantastic. Well, what is that steak supposed to do for us? And whatever you eat or drink, somehow in what you eat, you're to do to the glory of God. Well, how do you eat steak to the glory of God? I think the most practical way in the world is to let that steak remind you, this is, this is the tip of the eye. I mean, this is the tiniest little droplet. I'm going to get immeasurable riches of grace. Immeasurable. In this, to the same degree that destruction is everlasting and without mental category so also is the life, the richness of grace that is for those who are in Christ. If we can't understand the destruction, I would argue that neither can we understand the richness of this grace. It's immeasurable. You cannot put, you can't section it off. It has no limitation whatsoever. And how do we get this? How is it that a person 
doesn't fall victim, so to speak. Um, that's really probably a bad word. We're not victims. We're criminals. But how does a person prevent from having 2 Thessalonians 1.9 be their lot? And how do they have Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, the immeasurable riches of Israel? How do you have that be your lot? There is quite clearly the practical end of it, the, the human responsibility standpoint. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. You will have Ephesians 2 7 as your lot. If you walk in belief and in repentance of sin, you will inherit these immeasurable riches of grace. These will be yours. But let's go beyond that. Let's go beyond just the human responsibility. Let's back the lens out even further and go, okay, why ultimately? Why is it that I choose to believe and repent and not the guy down the road? Not the, the person who was in the same room with me who heard the same gospel from the same guy on the same day. He didn't believe it, and I did. Why did I choose to do those things and not him? Was I smarter than him? Was I a little better, a little sharper, a little more focused, a little less immoral? What was it about me? Here's what happened to you. God made you alive. God made you alive. Those whom he foreknew, he had predestined for adoption as sons. They were to receive a new birth. Isn't that cool lingo? We were dead in sin, in need of Christ to come be our resurrection and our life. And the way that he speaks of it is new birth. Completely regenerated, made new. And it's a work of God. God made us alive together with Christ. He did it. It's His work. Now, does that negate our responsibility to believe and repent? Absolutely not. It's heresy if anyone tells you different. We're not passive. Uh, we don't just lay back and go, well, God, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. If you zap me, you zap me. If you don't, you don't. Here I am lying. Here I am. That's not the way that we're told to live. But it's important that we recognize that what we are commanded to do, believe and repent, we don't inherently have the ability to do that. We need God even for us to believe and repent because we are dead. The mind that's hostile toward God does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It can't do it. So even what God commands us to do, He gives the grace for. What God commands of us, He supplies for us. Let that set in for a minute. What God commands of us, He supplies for us. He makes us alive. He grants us. Paul even prays for God to grant repentance to people. Even the faith that we have, 
some people get all caught up on that. And they go, well, see, this is our part. We were supposed to exercise. That's completely abusing the passage. For by grace, you have been saved. Through faith. It's as though God had grace pass through this channel of faith. But where did the channel come from? The whole idea is that your salvation was accomplished by grace. By grace. What God requires of you, He also supplies. He gives salvation to His people. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. He did that. He predestined to make some people alive. So that 2 Thessalonians 1.9 is not their lot. It's not their inheritance. Instead, it's Ephesians 2.7. He secures for them a place where they'll be shown immeasurable riches of grace and kindness. Now here's where I'll stop. So far, I've really only talked to you about what will come. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 speaks of the eternal destruction. Ephesians 2.7 speaks of immeasurable riches of grace. But let's rewind to conclude back to Ephesians 1. Notice the present tenseness of what's being said here. There's a past tense uh, of what God has done in predestining us and choosing us. But then there's this idea of to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So, He has done something for us in the past. Namely, He has blessed us with this grace of predestination as for adoption. Okay, For those who have been blessed with that grace, what's to be their mode of operation now not just in the future what's to be the mode of operation now the praise of his glorious grace so we don't it makes life not drudgery anymore on the worst days that we have the worst days that we have what do we possess Redemption, forgiveness of sin, right relationship with God. Sin that's accredited, committed by us, accredited to Jesus so that he was punished for it. My sin is no longer held over my head. I no longer bear the weight of my guilt now. And what should that produce in me but praise? Thank God that I don't bear the weight of my own sin any longer. Even on the worst day, when my parents die, that will happen one day. My parents will die. If If you live long enough, your parents will die. Some people are going to experience the loss of their spouse while they're still alive. Some of those people will have been married to them for 40 or 50 years. 
And there will be a day when their spouse dies. Though the pain of that should be grieved, and it's, I, wouldn't, I, can't, I, don't, I can't imagine it. What do you have even on that day? You have redemption, the forgiveness of sin, because God elected you before the foundation of the world and predetermined to give that to you as a free gift. He predetermined. He, he chose you for that. You were elected for that. So why does this doctrine of election matter? Because <laughs> it means everything. Without the doctrine of election, I'm dead in sin with 2 Thessalonians 1.9 awaiting me. And I have no hope of anything else. Paul made it crystal clear in Romans 3 that people don't choose God. No one seeks God. No one on their own seeks God. I would still be dead in sin, but because of the doctrine of election, because God has predestined me for adoption as His Son, I now have forgiveness through His blood, the redemption of sin. And ladies and gentlemen, if we need argument beyond that, that the doctrine of election matters, I don't know how to give it to you. I have exhausted my resources on that. I pray it's been a blessing for you to hear. Let me pray.